Welcome to the new Sunday School class on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's what we're doing up here. If you feel like you're in the wrong place because you want to hear about instructing a child's heart, that's downstairs. <clears throat> and would encourage you, as these classes are going on, uh, whichever one you choose to attend, that you would pray for the Lord's blessing on them both as we are encouraged, instructed, helped in knowing how to not only take the faith into our hearts, but how to communicate that faith to others. Because ultimately, both this class and the downstairs class are, have, with, have a view of communicating the truth of God to others. Well, as we get started, let me open this up with prayer. Gracious Father, we come into Your presence this morning grateful for this day of rest and gladness, a day where we cease our ordinary labors and we engage our souls in doing <clears throat> that wonderful task of glorifying Your name together, blessing You with all of Your people. Lord, we ask for Your particular care upon us in this Sunday school hour that You would instruct us, that You would help us to rightly think about You and to learn how to convey Your truth in clear and accurate ways. We pray that You would give us understanding by the Spirit's power. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we come to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I want to make some preliminary comments about the catechism itself. I want to point out a few helps uh, that could be useful to you as we learn it. And I want to convey a goal. And the goal is that as we slowly walk through this class, that you're actually going to make an attempt to learn the Shorter Catechism. They are short phrases, and I'm going to encourage you even today, most everybody knows this one, but to say it. So eventually we'll get to a spot where I'll say the question, I want you to say the answer. But let me mention a few resources to you. Um, the Shorter Catechism, in terms of its publication, you can get it in all kinds of forms. There's a, a small little banner of truth, Westminster Shorter Catechism, that can fit in your pocket. Uh, with the Scripture proofs, actually. So that's very nice to have something this small that you can take around with you. If you're trying to work to memorize, it's always good to have it on your person. And this helps you to do that. Uh, a little bigger, uh, but still pretty thin, is a Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, with a modern English study version. In case the old language trips you up. Uh, also, I believe this particular version when it comes to study uh, helps you with references in the ESV. If you, you know, obviously when the Westminster Confession was put together in its catechisms, they didn't have an English Standard Version. So if that's the Bible that you're working with, it's helpful to have a catechism that uses that language when we come to studying the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. If you want something nice, was there a question? The, uh, the publisher, Great Commission Publications, publishes that particular version. <clears throat> and then the Westminster Shorter Catechism, or the Confession of Faith and Catechisms with all the Scripture proofs, you know, you want a nice, slim, but yet hardback, sturdy, you can carry with you. Uh, you can get these through the office here. You can get any of this stuff through the office here if you wanted it. But again, this is used, um, it's published, adopted by the PCA, and that, that does matter with respect to the Confession of Faith. Um, publisher is the 
Orthodox Presbyterian Church. They put out this particular one. You can find all of this stuff online, but I just wanted to mention it to you. If you have a hymnal, the Shorter Catechism is in the back of the hymnal on page 869. Scripture proofs aren't there, but the language of the Catechism is there. <clears throat> so, if you already own one of these, well, that's a helpful tool. And let me say something, it's totally off the subject, of the value of owning a hymnal, <clears throat> having a hymnal, using a hymnal for devotional purposes for yourself, for the access to the hymns, the access to all the ancient creeds, they're all here. This is a great devotional resource. So, I encourage you, if you don't have a Trinity hymnal, uh, get one and have it at your house that you can use it. Okay, advertisements over the study. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let's start with some background information. Uh, you can find all of this stuff online, but just to remind you of a few things. In 1643, uh, Parliament, then called the Long Parliament, they called the Westminster Assembly of Divines. <clears throat> We're uncomfortable with that word because it sounds like they're being called gods. They're not. The word divine was the old word for theologian. So they assembled together these pastor theologians. Uh, I think it was about 127 of them to come. Not everybody could come. Some die in the midst of it. Some are replaced uh, along the way. But nevertheless, uh, 1643 is when it begins. Their original task was to revise the 39 articles. However, when the king at the time, Charles I, uh, was attacking his own people. Um, Parliament went into an association, a league or a covenant with Scotland, and the English signed the Scottish Solemn League and Covenant. And when they did that, Scottish commissioners, six of them, were sent to the Westminster Assembly, and they scrapped the idea of revising the 39 Articles, the doctrinal position of the Church of England, still the doctrinal position of the Church of England, though they ignore it. But nevertheless, I digress. <laughs> um, they decided to do something different, that they might unite these two nations. And their, their main task at the start <clears throat> was a form of government. They produced a number of different documents. The form of government took a long time, a lot of disagreement about it, 1643 to 45. A directory for worship. Um, this was to replace the Book of Common Prayer. They didn't want a specified liturgy that someone is constantly reading from. They wanted to give pious advice or directions for the approach to public worship. A confession of faith, that's often what we're thinking about with the Westminster Assembly, 1646 to 48. A larger catechism for mature theological study. And then a shorter catechism for the training of children. That was one of the last things they were working on. And then they produced several other documents along the way. could say a lot more about that. I don't want to get hung up. <clears throat> As it pertains to the Shorter Catechism itself, after an initial committee was dissolved because the original chairman died, um, they eventually appointed four men to the task of working on the Shorter Catechism. They are Anthony Tuckney, Stephen Marshall, John Ward, and Samuel Rutherford. Now, what's interesting about the Scots, Samuel Rutherford is the Scot. He was the only Scot left in 
in London at the time. So while we might think, if you know anything about reform history, oh, Samuel Rutherford, that's a great choice. He was the only choice. So he gets put on this little committee. He doesn't have a vote because he's a Scot. All the Scots didn't have votes. They just had the ability to say things, which is interesting. A little bit of the English still sticking it to the Scots. Um, that kind of stuff continues even today. But the assembly, um, what they were doing as they were putting together this catechism is they looked back to the practice of the early church called catechesis. And this was the teaching of the Christian faith for a new convert. In fact, if you really study the history of this, <clears throat> what we now know as the Apostles' Creed was used in a slightly shorter form as the original Roman creed for catechizing new converts in preparation for baptism. And they would go through a lengthy catechetical process and then be baptized on Easter Sunday. And that was kind of a, a practice in the church at Rome, although catechesis wasn't limited to the church at Rome, but that Roman catechism or what will come to be the Apostles' Creed. Most of it, there were a few phrases that go through some revision. But that was a pretty early practice. I would say 2nd, 3rd century that the church is doing catechesis to train new converts. So this is an ancient practice. And then the Reformers revived it. Luther wrote a catechism. Uh, Calvin wrote a catechism. James Usher, who's an Irishman, <clears throat> wrote a catechism. And the catechisms that these men had put together, they were used by the Westminster Assembly as kind of background information. They would have all been familiar with them, very familiar with them. Now, the word catechism comes from the Greek verb katecheo. There it is in the Greek. You can say you learned a Greek word today. Uh, it means I instruct, but it almost always is in the passive to be instructed by word of mouth i.e. to undergo religious training. And we see this come up in several places in the Bible. I'm just going to mention one because of time. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Luke is writing to Theophilus, aiming to give him certainty in the faith. And notice how he puts it. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's our word, catecheo. You've been catechized in truth. I want to further reinforce the truth to you. And that's the purpose of this book here in Luke and, of course, Acts as well, because Theophilus is writing, or Theophilus is the receiver of both volumes of Luke's work Luke and Acts. Now, teaching the catechism, we kind of already talked about the what of the catechism, but I, I want to talk here about the why of catechism. <clears throat> I don't have time to do a robust defense of this, but let me just highlight a few things for you. Why teach the catechism? It gives us succinct categories and statements to understand Christian doctrine. Succinct categories and statements to understand Christian doctrine. In any field of study, we require categorical thinking. 
how do I understand kind of the survey of the theological landscape here? So I, I know the lingo, and I understand kind of what we're talking about. That's what they're doing. They're giving us succinct. The confession isn't, one could argue, 33 chapters summarizing the whole Bible, and it's only, you know, it's really it's only this long, and this has scripture proofs. That's succinct in view of summarizing the whole Bible. But this is even more succinct as we come to a catechism. It's helping us to have the language to express our faith. Machen credited his love for and commitment to the Reformed faith to first being taught the catechism by his mother. And that would have huge impact on him in the future. He was grounded in the faith, even when he's going to struggle with the faith later on, because he knew his catechism. And it gave him what we often call the theological furniture to have a theological conversation. The, The mindset was there, instructing him, helping him grow up into the knowledge that he had in his heart. Second, catechism helps us verbalize doctrinal content, summarizing Scripture in precise yet pithy ways which can stick. Precise yet pithy ways which can stick. That's a helpful way to put it. We want language, I'm using a realism, that sticks and strikes consciences. We want to not only know our theology, but be able to put it in such a way that it sticks. That's the intent of a catechism. To give you short bursts of truth that will stick with you. And it really is masterfully done the way it's able to summarize something that's a hard concept to describe in such a short, clear way. Justin's going to be the one to teach you on the doctrine of God, question number four. But that that's an amazing statement. What is God? Who is God? How do, you, how do you describe God? Well, they're going to do it in an economy of words that just blows your mind. And I'm not going to steal any of his thunder. Catechism, why do it? It enables us to grow into understanding the whole counsel of God. Catechism is, is systematic in its approach. So we're not just looking at one particular passage of the Bible and asking the question, what does this passage teach me about God? We're trying to get a whole survey of what the Bible is saying about God and then summarize that in just a statement. That's really helpful. And as we look at the whole counsel of God, the catechism is intending to move through the major heads of doctrine. It doesn't tell you it's doing this, but it moves through the doctrine of Scripture first, the doctrine of God, who He is and what He does, His creation and providence. It moves us to understanding God's covenant with man. So we get into a a biblical anthropology. Then we move into Christology. Who is Christ? What did He do? Then we move into the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And then we move into the doctrine of last things. So, it, it just gives us these basic heads of doctrine, and it just walks through. Really, all the catechism is doing, and this was the intent, to explain the doctrinal content of the Apostles' Creed, to give the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. That's really all it's doing. 
explain the doctrinal content of the Apostles' Creed, give you the Ten Commandments so you have a basic ethical framework for living, and the Lord's Prayer so you understand the form God gave us to pray. It's only 107 questions and answers. It's just very, very brief. Um, one final reason. We're called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 1.3 The faith is not simply a recitation of Scripture verses. <clears throat> Heretics always quote the Bible. And the devil quotes the Bible. The faith conveys the content of the Bible in doctrinal formulation. Now, this is a learning process for sure, but Paul will tell Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. That language, sound words. Uh, sound here means literally healthy. Healthy doctrine as opposed to sick or unhealthy doctrine. I'm giving you words that stand the test of time. <clears throat> well, the church is always judged writing confessions or making creeds or doing catechetical work as giving you sound words. We've carefully thought about conveying the information to you in a way that's helpful, that summarizes the faith. So these are some reasons about why to do the catechism. All right. Some of you may still say, <clears throat> well, does the Bible actually do this kind of stuff? Yes. It does. I don't have time to make a robust defense. A couple of examples uh, for both creeds, confessions, catechisms. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I delivered to you for, as of first importance what I also received. And note this poetic structure of this. <clears throat> that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Could you summarize the gospel in shorter words than that? I bet you couldn't. This is a well-thought-out, almost poetic structure to summarize heads of doctrine pertaining to the gospel. And it's pretty clear, scholars recognize, Paul is using something that he either, either developed himself for the people to say, or he's using a pre-existing statement that everybody seems to know. Because there's such, do you see the symmetry in it? According to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, for that clauses. Very poetic instruction. There's another one of these in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And we get a bunch of poetic phrases. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There are hymns to Christ in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 that seem to have poetic structure, like who is Jesus and what did He do? And they explain. Uh, there are statements in the pastoral epistles, a bunch of them, trustworthy statements. And again, that trustworthy statement is a statement that people would have known. It's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost, or I'm, I'm the chief. Um, so the Bible does this kind of thing. It gives us bursts of truth to summarize subjects. Okay, all that's background. We've got 20 minutes to actually get into the content. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I'm going to say this again, and you're going to say the answer with me this time. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God 
and to enjoy Him forever. We're going to do it one more time. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Most of you already know that. It's probably the only one that you say, I really know that one. Why do we say this? Um, Well, I want to explain it, but first I want to show the influence of this statement. Anybody know Mark Twain? Uh, Mark Twain had a mother who was a strict Calvinist. Mark Twain is a godless man. But I want you to see, even as he attacks Christianity, what he uses to do it. What is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly if we can, honestly if we must. Who is God? That's a later catechism question. The one and only true. Money is God. Gold and greenbacks and stock. Father, son, and ghosts of of same. Three persons in one. Do you see the blasphemy there? These are the true and only God, mighty and supreme. What a sad statement. But do you see how he's conveying the truth? He's using the catechism, right? What does that tell you? Well, he was catechized. And he at least knows question one and question four of the catechism. I think question five as well, which is on the Trinity. And he knows how to stand against it. And it's sad, but it's still affecting him. And on Judgment Day, he will be responsible for what he knows. To whom much is given, much is required. This is sad. Well, it's still valuable though. So don't discount one man's evil unbelief and response as though the truth of these things isn't helpful. So, let's explain. What is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Why is God to be glorified? We could spend the the next two months talking about this. I'm just summarizing quickly. 1 Corinthians 8.6 There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and note this phrase, and for whom we exist. We exist for God. That's our purpose. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. How do we come into being? Through the agency of of Christ. So we exist for the Lord. Bond servants are told, Ephesians 6 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. He's talking to Christians who've been redeemed and yet are slaves, but you're a slave of Jesus. The Lord has taken you to himself. You belong to him, therefore, you are to live as to the Lord and not to man. You exist for Him, creation. You've been redeemed for Him. You exist to glorify God. And then, of course, a description of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, But I think it shows us that sin is an assault on our chief purpose, which is to live for the glory of God. So if you fall short of living for the glory of God, that's what sin is in a simple way to describe it. Why else is God to be glorified? Exodus 15, Moses asks, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? No one is like God. That's clearly the idea. Well, if God is this incomparable great being, then You should glorify Him. Going on, Psalm 
95.6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Who is this Lord? He's our Maker. Why should you glorify God? Because He created you. Isaiah 40.22 is describing God's high position. He sits above the circle of the earth. The people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the tent like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When He blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare Me that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. God is not only the Creator, He's the God of providence. He's ruling the world. He, he's spread out the heavens like a tent to live in. He makes leaders come up. He brings them down. You should glorify Him because He just didn't make you and run away. He, make, he made you and He governs all things in the world. You exist for Him. Why is God to be glorified? He's incomparable again, but this is particularly pride. Deuteronomy 33, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, a word for Israel, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in His majesty. This God didn't just make you and rule all things. He came to help you. He came to save you. There's no God like this, that a mighty, transcendent, holy God would stoop to come help a sinful people and rescue them. Why should you glorify God? Because the Almighty God will come to be your helper. It should lead you to glorify Him. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. David, after receiving the Davidic covenant, sits down and asks, what more can David say to you? You know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Lord, who am I that you would enter into covenant with me? That should lead me to praise you. To, to live to your honor. That's the sense. And then Jeremiah 10, incomparable nature of God again. There's none like you, O Lord. You are very great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. Note that phrase. <clears throat> Why should you glorify God? Because you owe it to Him. There is a perfect being who created, sustains, has redeemed. You owe Him. Worship. He is the living, true, he's the living and true God, the everlasting King. How is God to be glorified? Slightly different question. Declaratively, that is verbally with your praise, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We don't add to God's glory as we praise Him as though God somehow lacks glory and we have to give it to Him so He's built up. We can't add anything to God. He's a perfect, independent being. But our duty is to bless His name. All the families of the peoples, that is, everybody on the face of the earth, should ascribe greatness to the Lord. They should enter into declarative praise. <clears throat> persistently. We should glorify Him persistently. Paul is speaking in Romans 14 about how we live. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
It's a statement both of possession and purpose, right? You are the Lord's as His children, those redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And you should live to the Lord whether you live or die. If you live, live to the Lord. If you die, die to the Lord. Everything is to be done to the end of honoring the Lord. So it's persistent in all of life. How else is God to be glorified? Publicly. There's no such thing as a private faith. Publicly. This is what Scripture calls us to. This is a call to worship. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim His excellencies, this God who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This proclaim here is not a word for preaching. It's a word for worship. We, we declare in public worship the greatness of God. So, if you come to worship and you don't sing and you don't engage in prayer, you're disobeying this because you were saved for the purpose of proclamation in worship. And it's here, not you individually, y'all. Y'all are a chosen race. This is what we do corporately. And then we also praise God privately. Um, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in every little sphere of life, whatever we're doing, we're to do it unto the glory of God. And whatever doesn't serve the interests of the glory of God, we shouldn't do. When you're asking yourself that conscience question, should I do this or not? <clears throat> well, can you argue that this thing in question is to the end of the glory of God? Like your purpose is to glorify God. Whatever is not a faith is sin. If you can't do it to the glory of God, you can't do it. I've mentioned before Jonathan Edwards' famous resolution, uh, resolve not to be found doing anything that I wouldn't want to be doing when the Lord Jesus returns. You kind of put a twist on this. Resolved not to be found doing anything that doesn't lend itself to the glory of God when Jesus returns. My purpose is to glorify Him publicly, privately, all the time. How is God to be glorified? <clears throat> Holistically. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my treasure, my inheritance forever. All of my being, I want to give to Him. There's none like you, and I want to worship you. This is the heart of the believer. And then Psalm 16.2, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. There's nothing that you experience as good unless it's been given by the hand of a Father who delights to give good gifts. So you receive it in order to glorify Him. Thank You, Lord, for what You've given to me. Now, why is the glorifying of God put before the enjoying of Him? Uh, Thomas Boston writes as follows. Glorifying of God is put before enjoying Him because the way of duty is the way to the enjoyment of God. That's very profound. The way of duty is the way to the enjoyment of God. Here's where the devil comes in and really gets after us. The devil will tell us all the way of happiness 
is contrary to what God said. Go do your own thing, and then you'll be happy. No, Scripture says the way of happiness is found in doing what God has said to do. And you see this, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So happiness, satisfaction, true uh, joy of the soul, peace in the soul, that's found in the way of duty, not in turning aside from the path of the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 8, this is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. If you're doing what God says to do without delight in doing it, if you're doing what God says to do without delight in doing it, then you are not glorifying the Lord. It's not enough just to do your duty. You must do the duty that God has called you to do with the right heart attitude. Now, is it better to do your duty with a heart attitude that isn't the best than not do your duty at all? Sure, sure. But that doesn't rise to the level of living to the glory of God, right? What is sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The motive isn't there to glorify God. Pagans all the time do things that God requires outwardly, but they don't do it with a heart to glorify God, the intent to delight in Him. Well, that can't be a good work then, because only what tends to the glory of God brings glory to God. Why is glorifying God put before enjoying Him more explanation? Thomas Boston adds, No person who does not glorify God here shall ever enjoy Him hereafter. If you don't live to the glory of God on earth, you will never enjoy Him in the future, in the the world to come. Matthew 25, I think we confirm this. This is the Master talking to the men with the talents. Uh, He says to the first, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And note this phrase, Enter into the joy of your Master. But the one talent guy who buried his talent and said to the master, I knew you were a hard man. That's why I did nothing. The Lord says, You wicked and slothful servant, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No faithfulness here, no future happiness. No faithfulness here, no future happiness. If you live a godless life, you will end up in misery. How do we enjoy God? Spent a long time on this as well. Let me highlight a few things. First, there's just the command. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? Uh, William Plummer, I've mentioned him before. William Swan Plummer, 19th century Presbyterian preacher and theologian. He has a psalm commentary that's about this thick. It's really good. Um, He doesn't just give you all the details of the verses. He applies like he has doctrinal remarks of application at the conclusion of every psalm. Tremendous book. Here's what he says. Take refined pleasure 
or let your most exquisite delight be in the existence, names, titles, attributes, works, providence, word, and ordinances of God. There is an absurdity in calling on men to be delighted with vanities. But when Jehovah, that's the covenant name, when Yahweh is presented as the sea of love and enjoyment, we may well ask the weary to bathe and be refreshed. Be refreshed in who God is, knowing Him, knowing His character, knowing His ways, knowing His promises, knowing His word, knowing His ordinances that He's given for your growth. Uh, This is how to find your delight in the Lord seeing the way He deals with you, how tender He is, how kind He is, how faithful He is, how He's unchanging. This delights the soul. When you're in the depth of sorrow, you feel forgotten. You feel abandoned. You feel like you're in in the depths. What can you do? You can cry from the depths to the God who hears. You can find a God who we already heard. Rise the heavens to your help. You can hear from a God who when your soul clings to the dust, He says... You can be revived by the Word. He comes to strengthen the weary and increase the power of the weak. Who is like this? You can delight yourself in Him, what He's like. He never fails you. How do we enjoy God? Y'all know these verses. Rejoice always. Pray continuously or pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And note this. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that this is the will of God probably is all three duties. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. You enjoy God as you thank Him in every circumstance of life. Rejoicing always. How do you rejoice always? Well, you can't necessarily rejoice in some rotten, low-down, filthy thing that has happened, but you can rejoice in the God who uses that rotten, low-down, filthy thing to yet be for your good. You can rejoice in the God who when men fail you, He doesn't. You can always rejoice in Him. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter, being attacked by people in the church. And he says, yet, rejoice always. I say again, rejoice, he he says. Um, 1 Timothy 4.4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul is speaking in context here about groups of people who forbid marriage and forbid forbid eating of certain food, and he says, don't listen to those guys. Everything that we receive from the Lord is good, and we shouldn't reject it if we receive it with thanksgiving. It's from this concept that comes praying at the meal that we receive our food with thanksgiving because God is the one who's given us what is good. So we're, we're pausing to recognize God's good gifts along the path of life. Mealtime is a good time to do it. There have been patterns throughout the history of the church of morning and evening where you reflect on the goodness of God, the sustaining grace of God. So we enjoy Him as we stop to consider what He's done, how He's helped me today, how He's provided for me, how He's been faithful to me today. When we stop considering the daily mercies of the Lord, it's when we begin to drift to unbelief, a lack of love. We have a a love that grows cold and we fail to see the goodness of the Lord which we enjoy. So enjoy Him by rejoicing in Him, praying to Him, giving thanks, and receive everything He gives with thanksgiving. 
Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. How do you enjoy God? Sing to him. Sing praises to him. This is how we enjoy the Lord. Even if you sing poorly, sing praises to him because you've been made for him and you, you delight. I've never met a person who doesn't like music, ever. Never met a person who doesn't like music. Now, maybe your choice and what you like is really poor. <laughs> maybe the music is bad, but you still like music. And all of us recognize there's just something in us that wants to sing. Our emotions want to reach a point where we rise out of the humdrum of life and there's exaltation. Or we feel such sorrow that we want to sing. But we, the psalmist, when he feels that way, he still sings to the Lord. So we can enjoy Him by singing to Him. How else can we enjoy God? Psalm 119, In the way of your testimonies I delight, as, in, as much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The psalmist in Psalm 119 just keeps saying the word delight. He delights in the word and he delights in following the word. Plummer, again, many extravagant things are said respecting human happiness. But if anyone would have heaven on earth, Let him rejoice in the Word of God. Truth and holiness afford to the sincere believer a pleasure which is more exquisite as well as more solid and enduring than that which a miser feels at the acquisition of his darling wealth. I think of a a hymn here, Newton's hymn, uh, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken. Fading is the worldling's pleasure all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. We have solid joys in the Word of God. We have solid joys in the way of faithfulness. That's how we enjoy Him, recognizing that this is solid when everything around me is fading away. Why should we enjoy God? We're almost done. Well, because, David says, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. There's nothing like the love of God. It's indescribable. Uh, We sing songs about the deep, deep love of Jesus. Paul uses metaphors about the, the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's beyond description. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good. That's why we should enjoy Him. And Jesus tells us of our Father, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Your Father is not a stingy, uncaring God. He's a benevolent God who delights to give good gifts to His children. He just wants you to ask Him, commune with Him. So you should enjoy him because of his good heart. Thomas Boston, nothing but an infinite good can fully satisfy the desires of an immortal soul. Because whatever is good, sorry, whatever good he finds in the creature, he can still desire more and will continue to desire it 
And where it is not to be found, there is ha- their happiness is marred. God is the supreme good. C.S. Lewis has a comment it's very similar to this, where he says, if I have desires this world cannot fulfill, it must mean I was made for a, a better world. This world can't satisfy me because everything is corruptible. Everything is shifting sand. But God is the infinite good, and I will never be dissatisfied with Him. That's the idea. Why should we glorify God? This to close, this great hymn, O God beyond all praising, we worship You today and sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay, for we can only wonder at every gift You send, at blessings without number and mercies without end. We lift our hearts before You and wait upon Your Word. We honor and adore You, our great and mighty Lord. Why should you enjoy this God? Because there's none like Him. Why should you glorify Him? Because there's none like Him. He's the incomparable God. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. May you not only take that in, may you understand why you should take it in. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord our God, You are truly great and awesome, the true and living God, the incomparable reigning sovereign, full of steadfast love. You are our maker, our sustainer, our redeemer. And we do come to honor You. We exist for You. And we've been made, Lord, not only to serve You in a servile sense, but been made to take delight in our service of You. Make our cold hearts be warmed to Your praise and help us to find our happiness in the path of duty, delighting in You, the Lord, the infinite good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.